There's a book by Richard Strauss on the Christian home, and he discusses seven goals for parents. Now, these are, these are things we want. These are goals that parents should have. Uh, Kenny, there's a, I hear an echo on there, if you can. Is that just me again? I did this two weeks ago. You guys don't hear it, do you? It's just in my head, isn't it? I hear voices, too, sometimes, and I, I don't. Well, he discusses seven goals that, that Christian parents have and should have, and I think a lot of Christian parents will say they have, um, and if you want to have a godly family, you would have. And I found this, this list to be so suggestive, I decided to begin my sermon with it, but a little caveat here. Uh, these are things that we want to accomplish in raising our children, but after I read it to you, I want to read you a, a, li- a different list that I made, sort of to match these. It's called, sadly, the reality list, or, or it's a list that I made through observation, okay? So we've got this list of goals first, and they're going to sound great, and then then we're just going to get to reality. So here's the first one, Richard's list. Goal to lead them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Of course. I mean, as Christian parents, we, we want our kids, especially at a young age, to come to know Jesus. So that's the first goal. Next, to lead them to a total commitment of their lives to Jesus Christ. So we don't want, what parent would want their kids to, you know, just raise their hand or say, one day I stood up and said, I'm a Christian, I said a prayer, whatever. We, we want more than that. We want them to know that Jesus is number one and to completely commit their lives to him. The third one is to build the word of God into their lives. So learn to read God's word, learn to apply God's word and, and, and learn to read it as more than just story, but learn to read it as his story and learn to read it as God talking to us. And then teach them, you'll love this kids, ready? Teach them prompt and cheerful obedience and respect for authority. Because I know kids, I know most kids wake up every day and go, that's what I want to do. I mean, I want to just hop to it, and I'm waiting for my parents to tell me what they need, and that's what I live for, right? (laughs) Probably wrong on that one. But we teach them that. Teach them self-discipline. I mean, not just to get disciplined, but listen, learn to discipline yourselves. And then teach them to accept responsibility. Teach them the basic traits of Christian character, such as love, faithfulness, integrity, zeal, patience, and joy. Now, the reality list. I mean, this is kind of what we observe in it. I made it to match this other list. There's probably more, sadly. First, to lead them to an appreciation for all religions and the belief that there are many, many roads to heaven. That's what I see a lot. Next, to lead them to a total commitment of their lives to God, little g, and that God's name is success. To have an appreciation for reading the classics or just reading period. Just, just make sure you read, but not God's word necessarily. To teach them slow, mouthy disobedience and disrespect for authority and to, acque- and to question all authority immediately, all authority of any kind. Got real quiet with this list, didn't it? To teach them to blame others for everything and never accept responsibility. As they grow older and, you know, a teacher says maybe they didn't turn in their homework. Hey, I listened, this happened at school today. No, it didn't. Teacher's fault. Everybody else's fault. Not my son or daughter's. Not my sweet little cherub's fault. To teach them the basic traits of getting ahead and making a name for oneself. And finally, to teach them that everybody has an inerrant sense, or should, of entitlement. So that's the list that as I look at a lot of even Christian homes today, and gang, here's how I found that list, honestly. Over nearly 25 years in ministry, sometimes I'll have parents come to me and um, they'll, they'll counsel. And sadly, 
there's this whole thing where people tend to come for counseling when it's a little bit late. It's just the nature of the, of the, of the game. They just, they come when they're in crisis. You know, I think counseling, by the way, is a great idea when things are going great. Learn how to do better in your marriage. Learn how to do things. Read books about family. Um, be in God's word. Use counseling to prepare for those hard times that are going to come. But mostly people come to counseling when things are in crisis. And when things are in crisis with their kids, there's a couple of things that I have observed with that. It's, you know, they go off to college. Hey, my son and daughter, they're not, they're not going to church anymore. They don't even seem to have an interest in God. They're pushing away from me. What happened? I'm losing my son. I'm losing my daughter. And a little investigation almost always shows that the second list was more of a reality in their home than the first one. The second list was more of a reality. I mean, they nearly all would say the first list was. I mean, if you ask them what they want for their kids, they'll, they'll never have seen that list, but they'll go right through it. But if you ask them what they did and how the weeks went by and what a day was like, a typical day in their household, they'll begin to describe the second list. Now listen, as parents, we want to move our children. Here's the deal. You know it. From dependence to independence. When our children are born, they are 100% dependent on us. More so moms <clears throat> than dads. Everything they need, we must supply. And as they grow up, they learn to do more and more by themselves. And slowly, the percentage of dependence drops. You know, I think in the 50s, you know, like from... Uh, kindergarten, whatever, toddlers to about 18, 80%, and then 50%, 30%, 10%, and then they're off. By the time they're ready to leave, leave home, they should be able to successfully do it on their own. I think studies done in, in the 2000s in this millennium would say, you know, 90%, 80%, you know, you're getting to the teenage years, 80%, getting to 20, 80%, getting to near 30, 75%. I mean, they're still kind of clinging there. So something has clearly kind of gone wrong a little bit. Something has kind of backfired. That perspective, though, explains the various rules and regulations that parents, now kids, you need to hear this, or teenagers too. Sorry I called you kids. But uh, here's why your parents, who do love you, tell you no. We tell you no now so that you will tell yourselves no later. Make sense? We tell you no now so that later you'll know when to say, man, I don't need to be doing that. And right now we seem like a till of the hun for doing it. But later you'll appreciate it, believe it or not. It's funny because I got a couple eye rolls in the first row and I've seen that all my ministry. <laughs> Nearly every week I preach, I've seen it. And I sort of expected that one. Not as many as I got, but I've expected them. So we give them external rules today while they're young and while they're growing up. So that years from now, they'll, they'll voluntarily, hopefully, you know, they'll choose those same rules. So we know that parents play a huge role that God has given them in shaping their children. And I heard this once and I love it. As the, this is probably worth writing down. It's just one of those old proverb sayings. It's not in the book of Proverbs, but it's an old saying. I don't even know where it came from. As the twig is bent, so the tree is inclined. As the twig is bent, so the tree is inclined. I'm not enough of a uh, green thumb guy to have learned this except the hard way. I, put a, I wanted some color in my yard, so I put a purple plum tree in there. Apparently, I put it in crooked. My, the, the, there's a guy that helps me sometimes with the yard, and he said, oh, man, who put this thing in? <laughs> and he just went on to talk about how stupid they were and how, you know, the tree kind of went this way and then grew straight. It really looks dumb at the base. And he goes, man, I mean, how hard is it to see that this thing, is, this root ball is put in crooked? It's like, oh, it's harder than you might think. I mean, it's just, there's clay and stuff and it's tough ground and you know, never mind, it was a crooked tree. It wasn't my fault. 
for putting it in there. But I mean, if you have that thing when it's really young and it was a little twig, you know, Home Depot thing, it was bent. Now it's bent. It's pretty big. And here we are like seven years later and it's a nice looking tree other than the fact that it goes this way before it goes that way. I just need to cut it down after work. <laughs> just get rid of that thing. Credo. Believing in something to die for. Not sure I got this either, but I love these things. These little, Google, how's that? All spirituality flows from a correct perspective of God. And I'm going to say this twice because it's so good. All spirituality flows, real spirituality, healthy spirituality, flows from a correct perspective of God. And all heresy begins with a misunderstanding of God. Let me say that again because it's so important. All spirituality, if you want to have a vibrant spiritual life, it flows from a correct understanding, a correct perspective of God, which you get from his words. And everything out there that sounds nutty or cults or that's heretical begins with a misunderstanding of God. It begins with when we say in our own minds, well, that doesn't sound fair. Well, if I was God, I wouldn't do that. Well, I think God is too loving to do this, that, or the other. What are we doing when we do that? We are making God in our own image, right? And we're beginning to put a misunderstanding of God, not only in our philosophy, in our heads, but that'll be passed on to our children and they'll grow up with a misunderstanding of God and that's where all heresy begins. So we need to influence our sons and daughters and influence them right. So I want you to just pause and think for a second. What, what role do you think? I mean, because it can be a little tricky. Influence can easily cross over into manipulation. So what do you think, parents? What, what role does influence play on our, on our kids. Some of you have real young kids here. Some of you have teenagers, a lot of teenagers in the front here. What role does influence have on our kids? And at what point does influence cross over or morph into manipulation? At what point does it fade back so much that it's, you're a poor example? Just good, healthy influence. What role should it play or does it have on our kids? Well, listen, I'm not saying this. Here's one thing it doesn't do. Salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit. But listen, God does use means. And if you've been around me, my ministry for a long time, I, I definitely don't hold back on the gospel. I'll, I will cast the net out there and we will see what the Lord has every time we present the gospel. And usually a lot of people get saved when there's a big day and we present the gospel. But I know that I'm not saving anyone. But I do put a lot of work into that. And I do put a, a, more work than any other message I preach are those special, you know, Christmas and Easter's and net casting sermons because it's got influence. And I take it serious because I know I'll be held accountable for that. But what role does influence play? God does use means and he uses godly parents to help produce godly children and eventually godly young men and young women. So here's the other side of that. I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm not saying it's just this category over here. If you are godly parents, you're going to have godly kids. If you are ungodly parents, you're going to have ungodly kids. Listen, Billy Graham had a son called Franklin, and it was really Frankenstein when he was growing up. I don't know if you've read the story of Franklin growing up, but he was a hellion. I mean, he was just, he'll say that himself. He was not a little bit of a rebel. He was just, they had, he had, I think, four kids, but that Franklin just, he had his hands full. And um, really... Uh, Billy Graham's wife had her, his mom had her hands full raising him. And he's now walking with the Lord only because they just stayed with him. He's now a very godly leader and influence. So it's not always going to work out that way. But it is a principle. I mean, there's always going to be Esau's and Jacob's in our life. Esau, the Bible's pretty blunt on this. Esau have, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. God actually said that. 
And what was it about Esau? Well, Esau didn't seem to care at all about the things of God. He took blessings and privilege and everything that God gave him. And he just kind of spit in the face of God and just kind of pushed it away and was ungodly. And there are people like that, ungodly children. The, uh, the sons of Eli, the priest, they were ungodly because they weren't raised right. But then there are Jacobs, Jacob I've loved, Joseph, Daniel. So there's always going to be both of them, plenty of them. But godly parents do make a difference. They just do. Paul says, and this is, check this out. This is a bold claim. I wish I could say this claim. And maybe we should as parents. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. I don't know if I've ever even seen a, I don't know if I've ever even heard a pastor say that. Because that would be pretty bold, wouldn't it? Who do you want me to follow, pastor? Me. I mean, I was just, how godly do you have to be? How straight and narrow do you have to be walking the path to be able to say, at least follow me? If you can't figure out how to get started following Christ, follow me as I follow Christ, and that'll lead you there. It's an incredible statement that Paul was able to make. Yet how many of us as parents would dare say that same thing to our children and our lives? But that's precisely what we need to be able to say. Follow me and I'll lead you to Christ. Follow me and I won't lead you away from God. I promise you I'll lead you towards him. So with that as an introduction, don't let that scare you. That's just kind of the introduction. We're going to go to 1 Thessalonians 2. So turn there in your Bible. 1 Thessalonians 2. And if you've got an iPad or whatever, it's easy to get there. And most of you do. I don't hear pages really turning. <laughs> I like to have... There we go. One person making their pages loud. I can hear that. That's sad to me that we do not have physical Bibles like anymore so much that we write in. Or at least if you're under 80, you don't have a Bible like that anymore. So this is where Paul uses two figures of speech that help us know what it means to be godly mothers, godly fathers, and as a result, we'll have godly children. So fathers, where are you? Raise your hands real high. I'm going to talk to you first, and I'm going to end with a story with you, but, I, but moms are definitely going to get the best side of this. It's going to be a little bit of beat up time. So 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Not so long ago, I read an interesting statement about the difference between mothers and fathers. Mothers tend to worry about their children's safety and security. See how accurate this is. I think it's pretty spot on. Fathers focus on their children's success. A mother frets over things like tender, loving care while father pushes their children hard because they know we live in a world where failure is easy and success is difficult, honestly. Both are absolutely necessary in raising children and serving the Lord, but there's such a difference. No, men and women aren't the same. Don't you hate when Hollywood does that or, or the secular media does that? We're just the same. There's no difference between men and women. And I'm thinking, have you even ever opened your eyes? Have you ever been around both at the same time? How can you say that? There's tons of difference. God made them different. Listen, both are absolutely necessary in raising children and serving the Lord. Our mission around here at Impact, I love this, we make it real simple. It's rescue, raise, and release. It can be summed up in three words, but in those three words, the whole Bible's mission is present. And I would put it this way for our message today. In order to make an impact, really make a mark in this world, we need to be on the same rescue mission. And this is the most important mission of our lives. We need to be on the same rescue mission that Jesus was on and is on. And that's not an easy rescue mission. That's a tough mission. 
if we're going to have success at it. I mean, if you go out with the Coast Guard to rescue some people that were on a sinking ship during a storm, and you don't feel like sailing if the seas are rough, but they are, or once you get out there, you don't feel like getting wet, or once you get out there, you definitely say, well, listen, I know I'm a Coast Guard, but <laughs> I never learned to swim. And you sit there on the boat, you're not going to be very effective. Your mission will be a complete failure and people will die. So we can't just say we're on mission. Yeah, I get it. That's my mission. We have to make an impact with it. We need to do this mission well. And then we need to raise up effective disciples, almost an army of Christ followers after that to carry on this important mission and then keep raising up these disciples to release other disciples to be on the rescue mission. And it goes around and around and around. And that's how we make the greatest impact. I believe the apostle Paul would actually love that vision statement. I believe he'd love it. Just keep it simple like that. Rescue, raise, release. In fact, think about what Paul did. Paul moved from city to city to city, planting churches. And that's what made him persevere in spite of opposition, in spite of indifference. Sometimes he went and they just could care less what he was saying. Sometimes they gave him death threats. Sometimes they carried it out. Uh, and sometimes he was physically weak and could hardly go on. But why did he go on? Because he wanted to make an impact on that mission. He wanted to see Christians become impact players for Jesus. Now, being an impact player is not always easy. And, and I think growing up in, in especially public schools today, it's harder than ever. Does anybody agree with that? Yes. Parents, you may say, well, when I was young, I walked uphill five miles both ways in the snow during summer, 30 below, all these little stories that we tell. It was so much harder when I was young, but it wasn't. It just wasn't. It's getting a lot harder now. There are things we just took for granted, even when I was going to school. I'm sure most of you remember the, the tragedy. Man, it must have been like a decade ago now. In Littleton, Colorado. Remember that? Columbine. Well, maybe you haven't really tracked, and this isn't something I, I say in a morbid thing. It's just sad how many copycat things there have been in the last decade that basically can trace their, their sickness back to those two guys that did that, that killed students in a school. There have been so many copycat things since that. Well, should this surprise us? The late Chuck Colson pointed out that the Columbine killers clearly included, basically targeted Christians among their group. They didn't have a whole lot of time to do what they were doing, but they did ask questions. And when they asked questions, it tended to be about, are you religious? Are you, do you believe in Jesus? They tended to target that group. And Chuck Colson went on to say, these days, this is a quote from him, when, and this, he's gone home to be with the Lord, but he said this five, six, seven, eight years ago. These days when parents send their kids off to school, they don't know in some places if they'll ever see them alive again. How could school possibly have turned into that? Or if they'll come home in a body bag. Today we need to raise teenagers who may have their only shot who to live on this rescue mission, who are not ashamed to stand up and to be bold and to pray in public and who won't be intimidated to drop their faith when hard times hit because hard times will hit. Now how can we do that? That's up to moms. That's up to dads. So Paul expands the concept of a father's influence with three phrases, and I said them a couple times in the verse. Let me say them again. First, he says, we encouraged. That's the first part of uh, verse 12. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging you. Well, listen, the word encourage, you know what it means? It means to come alongside of somebody, almost like a cheerleader. Somebody saying, you can do it. It has the idea of seeing a runner begin to stumble as they come around the last turn, and then you go 
and instead of even finishing the race yourself, you go and you help them. Even if it costs you everything, you encourage them. You make sure they finish well. That's what that word literally means. It's, it's not just a, you can do it, boy. I've seen you, you've got talent, good luck. No, it's more than that. It's even sacrificing yourself to encourage them and to back it up with action to see that they finish strong instead of simply letting them fall and finishing the race on your own, you help them. Next thing was we comforted you for you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his children, encouraging and comforting. A paraphrase I read said that Paul was constantly sharing his insights. Paul was constantly sharing his insights, his observations about life. This is a most positive statement. It reminds me of a little book. Any of you guys ever read The One Minute Manager? I think it's probably old and outdated now, but anybody, ever, anybody in sales? If you're in sales, you probably had to read that. It takes longer than a minute to read it, but it's The One Minute Manager, which has this one part that I think is awesome. It says, if you really want to encourage someone, here's the key way to do it. Anybody remember what it says? What's the key way to encourage people? Let me give you the opposite way. Let me give you the polar opposite of what he says. What do you think happens to kids if every time you come around the corner, parents, and you see them doing something, you point out what they're doing wrong? Do you think they're going to grow up and go, man, I just really soared through life because my dad made sure that I knew always what an idiot I really am. Was that a bad thing to say? <laughs> Seems to have gone dark on me. Um, so it's the opposite of that. What the one-minute manager says is catch them doing something right. Catch them doing something right. You know, most places that I worked growing up, I, I found that bosses are pretty talented, pretty skilled at catching people doing something wrong. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because, you, you know, somebody may film it, somebody may see you raising your hand about your boss, but you probably all had that experience. Man, I can't do anything right. There's a type of pairing that parents that way. You know, I'm going to refine my kid. I'm going to chip off all the rough edges. I'm going to make sure they get it right by telling them everything that's wrong. And hopefully by the time I chip away, I'll have Mount Rushmore of a kid. I will have a perfect kid looking just like I want. But by the time you've chipped away, you've pretty much killed them. You pretty much crushed that spirit. Better to find them or catch them doing something that's right. Next, we comforted you. Uh, or actually, I already said that we comforted them. Hey, I, this actually just happened in my house, I think it was a week ago, and I see my son sitting in the front row, so I'm debating whether I should share this. Okay, debate over, I'll share it. Well, I woke up with what I thought was really early in the morning, and it was a little bit scary because I was shocked at the scene that I discovered in my house. I walked into the kitchen, and apparently in the middle of the night, a very rare group of, how many of you like to read fantasy books? I can still see you even though we've been struck by darkness. Okay, a lot of you do. Lord of the Rings? Lord of the Rings fans? Yeah. Keep your hands up if you have ever seen World of Warcraft. Okay, a couple. Everybody's like, that's satanic. My hand's going down. All right, no. So I don't know that much about elves and let there be light. My timing was so far off. I don't know that much about elves, but I, I you know, just what you read about Lord of the Rings and stuff like that. I do know this. I know that they're rarely seen by human eyes. That's supposedly something common to all elves. So imagine my surprise when one of them was still there in the kitchen. It was a rare group of elves that had been there in the night, which not night elves. What else is there? Not the woodland elves, not the West Realm elves. Keebler. The, 
Keebler elves, not the Keebler elves. These were the even more rare group known as the cleaning elves. In some of your household, I guarantee you've never seen this. You have never seen cleaning elves, but it looked like the cleaning elves had come in the middle of the night. And imagine my complete shock even beyond that when I looked and one of them was still there. And it looked like a teenage elf to me, look around 17, but again, reading Lord of the Rings and stuff, I know that they can be 17 or 1,017. They can be really old. You never know with their age how old they really are. It looks somewhat human too. I always thought elves had pointy ears. And I look closer and I gotta tell you, this one, this particular one, looked a lot like my son Nathan. And my heart is just beating because I know this cannot be. Long story short, you know, after the defibrillator and all the things were, were done on me, it was Nathan. And I was kind of relieved, really, that it was because of what he had done. So I did what any dad would have done at that point. I said, Nathan, did you see the elves? I mean, it turns out that Nathan had gotten up early and he knew that mom, that Michelle was working very, very hard. She's really, really had to work hard the last couple of months, things going on at her office and so forth. And he just picked up on the fact that she was stressed. So he got up before anybody else and the kitchen wasn't as clean as it perhaps should have been under my watch, but he made the thing spotless. I mean, it looked showroom. It looked like Homerama type kitchen, which I didn't know was possible even with a cleaning crew of elves, but he did this by himself. And, and he didn't really want to talk about it. I was kind, Nathan, thanks. And, you know, I said, that's really kind. I mean, I, I very much appreciate that. I'm sure mom will too. But I did catch a little smile, which is a lot for Nathan, a little smile of acknowledgement. And I don't mean it to sound like he doesn't do that. He actually does do that. But I think that little, and I, don't, I haven't asked him, but I think even that little bit of encouragement, gang, catch them doing something right. Catch them doing something right. Don't always catch them doing something wrong and remind them of that. Look for the little things they're doing right. Remind them of that. And guess what? You might see more of that. It's a more effective chisel than the blunt one of criticism. And then he says, we challenged you. For you know that we dealt with each of you as fathers deal with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging, or challenging, some of your Bibles say, you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into the kingdom of his glory. When my kids were younger and were in ministry, especially when they are you know, five, six, seven years old, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, not so much anymore, but I would constantly, you know, they would tell me how somebody came up to them and say, hey, you're, aren't you Pastor Rob's son? Aren't you Pastor Rob's daughter? You know, which made them feel special, usually. Usually that was a special thing. It can be, can be a bad thing. Aren't you Pastor Rob's son or daughter? Shouldn't you be? And, and again, that's, that's a negative kind of thing. But it, it was usually kind of an honor. And now that I understand that we are, I'm a child of the king, and if you're a believer, you're a child of the king. I have an even larger responsibility to live in such a way that I enhance his reputation. If I want to make an impact on the world, that I enhance his reputation. So dads, you're called to lead. That's what Paul's saying in short. Now moms, here's your part. Here's your part. This is about a mother's love. And it doesn't mean that dads don't love. But there's something different and special and deep about a mother's love. 1 Thessalonians 2.7, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. Several years ago, this pastor friend of mine told me that he was, he was about ready to preach on a midweek service on a Wednesday night, and he's all ready and kind of rare some things, and went out there to preach. And somebody came, an older lady came and shook his hand and then kind of pressed a note in, into his hand and then walked away. 
And I don't like to get notes right before I preach. Afterwards is fine, if they're nice. Uh, but this note was, was kind of pushed into his hand, and it just simply said this. An ounce of mother is worth a pound of clergy. An ounce of mother is worth a pound of clergy. Now, don't miss the point by looking at how cruel that was to hand that to the pastor right before he preached. You ain't worth nothing. I'm a mom. I'm worth a lot more than that. Don't miss the truth in it. It's almost impossible to exaggerate a mother's influence on the lives of her children. It's almost, you can't say too much. Potentially good or potentially bad. But the influence that a mother can have in the lives of her children. First Thessalonians 2.7 contains a, a great picture of, and this is what the picture is. I'm going to give it to you real blunt because we're all mature here. But what it's really saying, this is a picture of a young mother nursing her newborn. And you're supposed to picture, or Paul wants you to picture how carefully she wraps them in her arms and watch as she lifts them up to her breasts. And she knows the little one can't even eat on his own when he's a little baby can't find food, can't survive without her. And, and she must not only feed him, but the food must come from within her own body. To nourish him, she must give of herself. Even just to, even just to nourish him, she has to give of herself. In verse 8, Paul goes on to describe the extent of a mother's love. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well because you had become so dear to us. So mothers make an investment in their children that fathers never really understand or not fully understand. You know, sometimes in our culture, and, and I thought about treading lightly here, but I think a lot of you know me, and just, again, don't miss the point of this, but sometimes in our culture, you can't miss it. Women will sometimes talk about, I don't know what to do. I, I don't know how to choose between, between children and career. I don't know. I don't, that's a mistake. That's a mistake. If you're a mother, your children are your career. And it's a great career. Amen. And that does not mean you can't work. But that's secondary. Your children are your highest career, your highest priority. Honestly, bluntly, someone else can do your job and someone else can win that case or close that deal or teach your class or do whatever it is you do in your job. Someone else can do my job. It's a privilege to pastor, but someone else can do it. God can raise somebody else up. But no one else can raise your children. No one else can raise your children. Mothers are quite simply irreplaceable. They're irreplaceable. How am I doing, moms? I told you, you're going to have the, you got the better end of the stick. Dads are going, can we back up a little bit? We got nothing. Something about Lord of the Rings. I'm already, it's already gone on there. Well, please, please don't make the mistake in that statement to think I'm saying something about working mothers or not. Just don't miss the point. Don't let the world suck you into its mold by making you feel unfulfilled. Half a person, if you're, here comes the quote, just a mother. Oh, I don't, I'm not happy. Well, I'm just a mother. How dare they say that? It's one of the greatest honors. Motherhood is a high, holy, and most noble calling. How many of you had a praying mom? You don't, you don't need to raise your hand. Just think about it. Had a praying mom or a praying, I think in our culture how things are getting worse, maybe a praying grandmother. Or maybe it's been so long, maybe you can't remember until a praying great-grandmother. But if you go back and you had that in your past, generations in there, you go back to the one that was praying real hard, you'll begin to see a pretty godly line right after that. It's a shame because we're called to lead, fathers. That's what I said first. And yet most of the powerful prayer warriors I know in my life are women. Are women. You know, we are first doing the launch team 
as a church and we had prayer ministry is 90% women. 90% women in there. Prayer is going before the throne room of God, calling upon the power and intervention of the Holy Spirit. And we're going, well, I've got more important things to do. I can't really do it. Let the women do that. How foolish is that? How backwards do we have it? So how many of us have a praying woman, or maybe a praying sister, a praying aunt? There are godly mothers and grandmothers who have prayed their children all the way to Jesus. I know my mom did. She did. She prayed me to Jesus, and I came to know Jesus when I was seven years old. And it was real, and it was powerful. And never put down children who say they've come to faith. I mean, I'm never going to do that at this church. Most people, 80, 85% of people who come to Christ do so before the age of 18 anyway. So we have to take it serious at that point in our life. And some of them are praying their children, grandchildren to Jesus at this very moment. But the kids haven't found out about it yet. And I've seen people throughout my years of ministry praying when the gospel is given. I can see women. I can see moms. I can see grandmoms with their heads bowed and tears flowing as they pray. And I can tell it's for somebody down the row that they're praying so fervently. And I've had countless grandmoms and moms come, and grandpas too, and, and dads come to me afterwards and say, I've been praying for my son. I've been praying for my daughter. They, they, they accepted Christ. They received Christ. And sometimes they'll introduce me and I'll find out it's a 40-year-old. How much prayer went into that? Do the math. 40 years. 40 years. Thank God moms don't give up. Why? Because of their unique, deep kind of love. Thank God for women of faith. Their prayers have changed the world. Their love, the love of mothers can save a life. And listen, their sacrifices especially can change the world. Take a look at some of these responses. my parents just so I could like go to school and like help me with like ADD. She probably had sleepless nights because of me. <laughs> so she's given up sleep at least. But... She gave up her art career. She a professional artist. And then she got married and she got had three kids. She gave up a lot. I would definitely say my mother has given up a lot of her time for me. Time. And, and just the fact of, of listening. Yeah, my mom has. She's given up a lot, like, a lot of her life. She has given up, like, her time. She's always, like, driving me places and, and uh, shopping and um, just, just time. Yeah, my mother, I mean, she gave... Uh, most of her life up for me. I wouldn't be who I am and where I am if it was not for my mom. Of course, like having kids, you have to give up a lot, so. She had some tough decisions to make when she uh, was a young married person and she chose to um, basically uh, leave who would have been my real father and uh, come back here and it was all really uh, for the good and safety of my sister and I. And as a result of that, um, she was a, you know, a single mother uh, in the 50s when it wasn't real, real popular. My mother 
has given up countless hours of time for me. Being born with cleft palate and hair lip, uh, many, many hours in doctor's offices, hospitals, and uh, she was always there by my side through all of that. So grateful for that. Very religious person, and she would care, you know, to see everybody come to Christ. But uh, it was very hard. People couldn't, you know, get that through their heads. I guess I don't know. It was a different culture that way. So I've talked to dads, like I said, and talked to moms, but when dads lead well and mothers love well, the result that maybe children don't want to always hear, but it is beautiful, is that a child makes a choice and they make the correct choice. Let's continue on in First Thessalonians. And, when, and we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, this is First Thessalonians 2.13, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God which is at work in you who believe. This is what happens, gang, when godly moms and godly dads work together to raise their children. Don't miss what verse 13 emphasizes. It's the logical result of a father's influence and leadership combined with a mother's love. I already told you this. Most people that receive Jesus Christ and are truly born again do so at an early age. And I know that I said 80, 85% before the age of 18, but it's something like 80% before the age of 12. So there's really a, a pretty small window, and that shouldn't make you panic if someone's older, but it should make you take seriously those years, those precious years when they're young. As little children, here's one of the reasons. If you modeled Jesus and you modeled godliness in the home, <clears throat> as little children, they probably said to themselves, if mom and dad love Jesus, I ought to love them too. I mean, honestly, it can just start out as habit. I'm just watching, and if what they're watching is correct and seems right and shows love, they'll go, this seems, this, they won't even consciously do it. They'll just say, that worked, and, and I ought to do, I learned, I was raised that I ought to do that too. That's precisely what should happen in a Christian home. John Patton's testimony, I want to share this with you. One of the sermons on the Christian home, Jim Elif relates the following story about John Patton. He was a pioneer missionary to the new Hebrids Islands, way out in the Pacific Ocean. And John Patton was born on May 24th, 1824, in a cottage in Scotland. And his parents were poor, 
<clears throat> but godly, very, very godly parents. And when John Patton became a young man, he was offered a scholarship to the Nauman Seminary in Glasgow, Scotland. And here's his account of the day he left home. And gang, this is just a simple thing of leaving home, but you have to understand where he's going. And at that time, his parents are likely, very likely to never see him again until they see him in glory with Jesus in heaven. So first time I read this, I couldn't get through it without tearing up. He says, I started out from my quiet country cottage home on the road to Glasgow, about a 40-mile journey on foot, and thence to Glasgow by rail. A small bundle tied to my handkerchief contained my Bible and all my personal belongings. Did you catch that? A small handkerchief? You ever see those cartoons and stuff where they have a stick and a little bag on the end? That's really what he had. All his personal belongings fit in there. So he had the clothes he's wearing and that. My dear father walked with me the first five miles of the way, which would mean he walked 10 miles that day. His counsel and tears and heavenly conversations on that parting journey are very fresh in my heart, as if it had been just yesterday. And tears are on my cheeks as freely now as then, whenever memory steals me away to that scene long ago. For the last half mile or so, we walked on together in almost unbroken silence. My father, as was often his custom, he carried his hat in his hand <clears throat> and his long flowing yellow hair stringing out behind him. His lips kept moving in silent prayer for me and his tears were falling very fast. We halted upon reaching the appointed parting place and he grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence and then solemnly and affectionately said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from evil. And he had said this often. He never had to say any more, in fact. His lips kept moving, though, in silent prayer. In tears, we embraced and parted. I had to run. I ran off as fast as I could. And when about to turn a corner in the road where he could lose sight of me, I looked back and I saw him still standing. I don't know why this gets to me so much, but it does. Still standing there with his head uncovered, still holding his hat, where I had left him gazing after me all that time, still unmoved. Waving my hat in adieu, I was around the corner and out of sight in an instant, but my heart was too full and too heavy to carry me much further, so I darted in to the side of the road, and I wept for a good long time. And rising up cautiously, I climbed the dike to see if he yet stood where I had left him. And he was still standing there. Just at that moment, I caught a glimpse of him. He actually moved and began climbing the dike near him to see if he could get a look at me. He did not see me, and after he had gazed eagerly for quite some time in my direction, he got down and set his face toward home and began to return, his head still uncovered, still holding his hat. I felt sure, still rising in prayer, his lips were going. I watched through blinded tears until his form faded from my gaze and then hastening on my way, vowed deeply and often by the help of God to live and to act so as to never to grieve or dishonor such a father and mother as he had given me. The appearance of my father as we parted, his advice, prayers, tears, the road, the dike, the climbing on it, the walking away, the head uncovered, have often, all through my life, all through the years, risen vividly before my mind. And so now, while I am writing, seems as if it was just an hour ago. 
In my early years, particularly when exposed to many temptations, his parting rose from before me as that of a guardian angel. It's deep gratitude which makes me here testify that the memory of that scene not only helped by God's grace to keep me pure from prevailing sins, and he was a well-known, very impactful missionary, but also stimulated in me all my studies that I might not fall short of his hopes and in all my Christian duties that I might faithfully follow his shining example. That's what I call making it easy for your children to believe in Jesus. Just the example that he gave. What a simple thing. That journey and that holding the hat and those prayers and those tears, that can't be an influence by itself. I mean, that's a a lovely scene and a beautiful picture, but unless there's a godly life backing all that up, leading up to all those years, that means nothing. That means nothing. He raised his son in a very godly way. His mom raised him in a very godly way. Now, not all of us have parents like that. Probably none of us had parents like that. And not all of us have been parents like that to our own children. No one's perfect, not even the best mothers and dads. They all make mistakes. We can't change the past. And there's nothing better than I could leave you with than to say what Paul said, forgetting what's behind. Leaving that, even, even a lot of the good stuff, pressing on, keep going. God gave you this day. And if you want to turn things around and you haven't done that great, you can start now. Let's us here and now resolve that we will use our influence to point our children to Jesus in a culture that keeps trying to grab their little faces and point them somewhere else. We have to get more purposeful. Let each father and mother pray fervently to become the right kind of godly example. Where we failed, it starts with this. If you failed, don't cover it up. Don't say, I don't make mistakes. I'm never wrong. Just confess it. Confess it where you've messed up. And then leave our failures at the foot of the cross. By God's grace, things can be different from this day forward. You know, this sermon should be, another title I could give it is God's plan still works today. Do you believe that? I mean, everything, a lot of stuff I, I read you today was, you know, a lot of stuff that I, I studied and looked at is old. Some of it 2,000 years old from the Bible. Some of it 1824 from that missionary. But I'm convinced that more than ever, these words are still true. And, and more necessary, these words from 1 Thessalonians. And they still work. Where fathers lead and mothers love, it will not be difficult for children to obey. It will not be difficult. It's amazing. We have all these books on the New York Times bestseller. We try so many things. We listen to Dr. Phil. We watch Oprah. And yet, if we will just lead well, fathers, and love well, mothers, it's not going to be that hard for your children to obey. And, and you know what? Make no mistake. That obedience is the greatest sign that you really loved. In fact, I think it's 1 John, and I didn't plan on sharing this, but I think it's 1 John where... We say that, how do we show the Lord that we love him? Anybody know what it says in 1 John? How do you prove it? How do you show Jesus? Instead of just talk, what do you do? It's real simple. You obey his commandments. So when Jesus looks at our lives and, and we're saying, I love you, Lord, I'm living for you, and we're doing our own thing, we're not fooling him. Except they're going, you don't, you don't love me. The greatest sign that you love me would be that you cheerfully obey me. That you cheerfully obey me. Even Jesus did not come to earth to be served or to do his own thing. Over and over again in scripture, Jesus says, I came to do the will of my Father. I came to do the will of my Father. 
He had a mission and much of it wasn't fun. But he obediently and lovingly and graciously and mercifully went to the cross and fulfilled that, that mission in obedience. Moms, dads, children have minds of their own. That's not a shock. Can't compel our children to believe in Jesus. But by our behavior, we can make it easier or we can make it harder. God, help us to make it easy for them to find Jesus Christ and to live for him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for mothers. Thank you for godly parents, Lord. Thank you for fathers who will lead in a culture that tells us we're no different than women and we shouldn't lead and moms and dads doesn't matter. You can have two dads, you can have two moms. None of that matters. It matters now more than ever, God. God, raise up godly men that will lead no matter what culture says, that will stick to your word no matter how times change. God, raise up mothers that will not weigh out their children's worth in raising them with their career. That they will see the value in it, see the urgency and importance in it, Lord, and stick with their children to the very, very end, Lord. God, I feel like we have many examples of that in Impact Church, and I thank you for the godly families, the sacrificial families, the loving families. I pray that you would be with parents who have struggled in raising their kids. I pray that you would be with teenagers who have struggled, have maybe not had uh, a good role model, Lord, or parents who grew up without a role model and now are trying to be a good role model to lead the way to you, Father. There's so many things because sin has entered this world that make it difficult to fulfill this seemingly easy passage. But with your power, Lord, and your strength and, and what James says, your wisdom. If we lack wisdom, Lord, all we have to do is ask. Unwaveringly and complete faith and not doubting and you'll give us the wisdom that we need and the love we need and the leadership we need to raise our kids well. Thank you for our children, Lord. They are gifts. That we don't own them, we get to raise them for a time and then release them back for your service. Help us to point the way to you so that they can see you through us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.